0: Hi there. Welcome back to The Yoga Show from Yoga Journal, your place to connect with thought leaders in the wellness community who are making waves big and small. I'm your host, Lindsay Tucker, Executive Editor of Yoga Journal. And in this podcast, we produce four-episode series around the themes of each issue of our magazine. The theme of our September-October issue is healing, a complicated task. Physically, psychologically, emotionally, in some way, trauma finds its way into each and every one of our lives. And no one comes pre-programmed with a roadmap for how to overcome it. But with the help of our friends, family, our community, and professionals, we can start down the path toward being whole. This week's guest is the subject of our September-October cover story, Steven Medeiros. He's an activist and advocate from the Bay Area who lost his leg to a motorcycle accident 17 years ago and his mother to murder at age 12. He's had a long, tough road to healing, both physically and mentally, from his past, And today, he uses what he's learned in an attempt to help heal society at large, to push for much-needed criminal justice reforms, to help prevent others like him from facing the same circumstances. Stephen, hello.
1: Aloha. Thank you for having me, Lindsay, in Yoga Journal. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Um, Before we get started, I'd just like to acknowledge that here in Berkeley, we're on Ohlone land. That's the Ohlone territory of the original peoples of this land. So I just wanted to highlight
0: that. I think it's really great to acknowledge stuff like that and something that we had talked about in the past was the opportunity to learn and relearn.
1: Even like for me as somebody that likes to think they're a little bit more illuminated than other folks especially in progressive circles but sometimes those circles are problematic because they think that you know because we've done this work and the internal work that we somehow get a pass on things but Like I'm constantly learning and relearning things, Mm -hmm. you know, and given my journey. And so like I was just saying, like I used to acknowledge, like I'm a Bay area native, but actually I'm not, but this is what 42 years of like giving that story. And now I know that that's actually, no, I'm, I'm, I'm dis It's like a disrespect to the people who still occupy this land, whose land was stolen from them. Right. Yeah. And so, so that's like part of this learning that I'm, relearning, unlearning Mm -hmm. type of thing. And so even just with things like um, pronouns, like in my workspace, the ACLU did a big push on that. Now it's, not that it's attributed to them, but Oakland is like the hub of activism. Like for the country, it's like super known, in New York as well, but specifically in Oakland, the Black Panther Party, whatnot, in a lot of the social justice circles here, we all start meetings off with our pronouns now in And just being respectful of other people's identity and how they choose to identify themselves, so this is just part of that learning and relearning thing, And this is one of those things. I don't think it's a like an appropriation thing. Yeah, that makes um, sense. But
0: Stephen, you have a yoga practice that you started at the age of eighteen. Correct. That's right. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that and how you came to find yoga.
1: Sure. And so it, it was uneventful. I was at my local bookstore um, uh, where I lived at the time. I think it was a local Barnes and Noble. Um, and I was came across a yoga book down in aisle, And I was curious. I opened the book and what I was reading really kind of just um, stuck out to me. Um, right in the moment? Right in the moment. It was very interesting. What was uh, it, it was saying? something that I had never seen anything like that. I didn't even know what yoga was. Um, it wasn't like in any of the spaces that I grew up in or anything. No, nobody was doing it in my family or in my circles. And so I decided at that moment to purchase that book. And, and that's when I took it home and I started um, practicing the different techniques on my own. And I noticed right away, like a lot of the physical, like there was like a physical release at the time. That felt, it was very intoxicating. And at the time I was going through some trauma And so it was, it felt very, um, therapeutic for me and, um, yeah. And that's kind of how my yoga journey started from a book at my local bookstore.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about what you were going through personally?
1: Sure. Um, this is more in hindsight, but, um, yeah, at 18, I was dealing with a lot of, um, trauma from my childhood, um, growing up without parents, um, and dealing with, uh, My mother was incarcerated when I was five years old, and so she was taken away from me and she went to prison for a lengthy sentence. And um, and my father was absent. I grew up with his parents, my paternal grandparents, and he had every opportunity to come and visit me and spend time with me, but he chose not to. So I was kind of dealing with that loss of not having my parents in my life. And um, when I was 12 years old, um, I had finally started to blossom and, and, and do really well in school and sports. And, and when I was 12, my mother had gotten out of prison, um, and she was walking home from work in East Oakland and she was murdered. And that really had a, a really big impact on my life. And for the next nine years, I went down this path of, you know, hanging out with the wrong crowd, making a lot of bad choices, drugs, alcohol, all those type of things. And, um... And so I was dealing with a lot of that, and, 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 and along the way I tried to stop a lot of the, those behaviors, but I was addressing the symptom as opposed to the root cause. And one day after many years of trying to change my life, um, I had one of those aha moments uh, where I realized what I had to do to move forward was to forgive my parents wholeheartedly uh, for all their shortcomings. And at that moment, I decided to do that, and I never looked back. And that healing was instantaneous. And I know that that's very that's not the norm for many people, but it was for me. Um, and and how so, how old were you when you had that? that I was twenty-two at, at when that happened, that healing. And yeah, so yoga. Yeah, um, I came across the uh, the yoga book at eighteen, a few years earlier. I was very angry. And I had like like that rage inside, and I had a lot of hurt, uh, physical hurt, and stress, and and you could feel that like just culminating throughout my body. And so that what the yoga did was it made me feel it almost it was like a drug. It was very intoxicating. It felt like release every time I would do it. It didn't matter if it was like the first time or like the thousandth time. Like you felt a release every single time, and so I kept doing it, still dealing with all the issues along the way, and and still trying to quit the the things that I was doing that were not good for me and in my family.
0: Um, But I am curious because I feel like what you're saying about yoga, how it helped you with emotional release and...
1: More more of the physical, like the physical built up of these different emotions that were happening Uh that were like just... Like I was harboring all this like built up anger, frustration, hurt, right? And the, the yoga when I would do the, these physical moves, it would, it, I'd feel a release
0: mm-hmm. every time. And then how did your practice evolve from there? So you were using a book?
1: I was using a book, and I stayed using a book and purchased more books, and surprisingly or, or not, um, I actually um, came across Yoga Journal, and I started to purchase that magazine fairly consistent and I've eventually bought a subscription and it was a book or magazine that I read all the time mm-hmm. and more than once the same issue. And I had stacks of yoga journals, magazines in my garage um, that I finally purged because I am now an aspiring minimalist, but <laughs> um, yeah, so it was essentially soft, self-taught. I did it on my own. I, I don't think I was comfortable at the time of like entering a classroom or a yoga studio uh, and I felt very comfortable just doing it on my own. I would have my little cousins practice with me and try to do the different things with me. Um, but yeah, I think at that I was at a point where I was kind of leaning towards maybe I wanted to be in community with other people who practice yoga, mm-hmm. um, just to have that shared experience. Um, but that's around the time my accident happened at 25.
0: Okay, so your accident happened at 25. That was a motorcycle accident.
1: It was yeah it was about 17 years ago on memorial weekend
0: okay what happened
1: yeah it was um it was a really great day sunny day and um it was the best actual time I've ever written on a motorcycle I was riding with my cousin and we we're about a couple blocks away from home when my back tire um it actually hit a banana peel and that's hit like hitting loose gravel or oil I lost control long story short um my leg um hit the corner street sign and and it cut it right off, and I injured my good leg really bad, and I was airlifted to San Francisco, where I spent about a month in the hospital and 11 surgeries. Um, yeah, and so it, it happened so quick, and um, obviously... and
0: So what was that like for you to wake up? Like you said, it happened so quick, so what is the... Realization process and the healing process from something that is so fast?
1: I think initially uh, the emotion, the things that most consumed me, especially during the accident, was I was just thinking about my daughter. I was so upset with myself that I would not... How old was your daughter then? She was, I think, around seven at the time. So she's 23. I don't know if that math adds up, but I think it's roughly... Uh, and I was really upset, like, I'm not going to see my daughter again, because I, I wasn't sure if I was actually going to live. Okay. Uh, and so I never passed out during the whole, the whole time. And um, when I realized after a few surgeries that it was hopeful that I would live, even though it's kind of touch and go with any kind of surgery, and I was always nervous every time I had to go into a new surgery, um, I started to th- start to think about like how life would be. I remember watching TV just to see the biomechanics behind walking, on how, cause I knew I would have to learn how to walk again. And so I kind of wanted to start preparing myself mentally, even while I'm still like, whether I'm going to live or die. And I'm like thinking about these other things. I, I had like all those normal human emotions at the time. Am I going to find somebody who loves me for me now? All, all the things like how is sex going to be? How, you know, just how is it going to be to get around and to do everyday things? Am I going to be able to go to college, uh, finish college? I was actually, uh, in junior college at the time, ready to transfer. And that kind of changed my trajectory a little bit because I it was like one of the first times in my life that I had self-doubt on my abilities. Um, I didn't think, this came a little later, but I didn't think I would be able to navigate a larger college campus, so I decided to apply to a smaller campus. Uh, my dream school was to go to UC Berkeley as an undergraduate, I ended up going to San Jose State, a much smaller campus. Um, but yeah...
0: So I'm sitting here with you now and we've spent a couple days together now on the cover shoot and I feel like the person that I'm looking at doesn't match up with the person that you're describing. Uh, You are very confident and charismatic and so I'm curious how you went from someone in a low point such as this wondering will you ever be these things where now you are today where you've gone to your you're at your dream school. You are getting your master's degree, right? At your dream school. Um what was the journey like from the bottom to the quote unquote, you know, here and now?
1: Yeah, I think that that those initial feelings are just human feelings regardless of where you're at in life. Um, fortunately, I was at a good point at that time. I was 25 years old and I had done that intentional work of healing. Um I had um when I was 22, I had dealt with a lot of that trauma that I had from my childhood. And Mm -hmm. so I was at a good place in my life. And so I was strong physically, mentally, emotionally. And, um, I knew that at that time that I, you know, I could have easily went the route of self pity and depression. Um, but because I was in a good place, I decided to use this as a, um, I, I first saw that, you know, I was very fortunate to be alive and I felt very blessed and I decided to look at the positive, like, you know, I, I'm going to be able to walk again, mm-hmm. right? It, it's just going to be different. I'm going eventually going to learn how to walk and use a prosthetic leg. Um, and I'm going to be able to do all the things that I want to do. It just might take longer and I might be, have to do it differently. And, and so, like I'd mentioned, um, I was in junior college when this happened and I had to take time off of school, obviously. I had injured my good leg really bad as well and I had to wear an external fixator around my leg for six months to hold my leg together. So I was really looking forward to getting that off. So I was confined to a wheelchair for almost a year Mm. and then um, transitioned to crutches. But um, when I got fitted for my first prosthetic leg and I received my first prosthesis, um, my appointment to to go to physical therapy to learn how to use my prosthetic leg was two weeks after i had received it and they tell you not to wear it more than 30 minutes a day because you're supposed to build um, a callus at the bottom and get used to the different pressures on your body and me me being the stubborn person that i am i decided that i would wear it all day and practice all day with it which is actually counterproductive to moving forward, but that was me, and I practiced walking with it initially with crutches within those two weeks, transitioned quickly to a cane, and learned how to navigate in and out of, uh, I went to my friend at the time, he was a pastor at a church, and I, the church had like a soft ground, and I was like, oh, I want to practice walking here, because if I fall, it will, at least it will be soft, and so I spent hours there, walking through the pews, and up and down the stairs, and getting on the ground, and helping myself up, and so then when I went in for that First physical therapy session to learn how to actually use my prosthetic leg I was actually able to test out of physical therapy by doing an obstacle course and so I never had to learn from a therapist how to use my leg I had self-taught uh, and so I was very very motivated to actually start my life and get going and I think I think uh more motivated than I was even before. And I think part of it was that I felt very fortunate that I was alive and alive and that I had so much now to do and accomplish and understanding that, you know, that life can change Mm -hmm. so quickly. Mm -hmm. Me being able to do these things that there's people, my daughter can't keep up with me. It's like, you're 23. You should be able to do all these things. We're going to go climb that mountain. Yes. And it's like, it's like the highest peak out here and you're going to come with me. No, no, if I can do it, you can do. I, I I used to use that line with her a lot. I got one leg. If I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> and she was like, oh. "That was like the one thing where she she's very sassy and she she's very opinionated." But that's if I said that line, she, nothing. I also had um, what was very surprising and apparent to people is that I had this. I guess you would call an aura. Um, I had this joy that emanated. Um, like people were drawn to me. Mm. It was, and I actually felt it. It was palpable. And. Um, was always smiling, even more so than I smile now, um, from ear to ear, everywhere I would go, and and um, I had this joy, and I think uh, I attribute it to just being, uh, being just fortunate to be alive. Like that simple act of just being alive, and that I carried that with me during this process for at least the first ten years, on how I engaged people and how I pursued my goals and whatnot. Um, but I ended up, yeah, going to. Um, It was very motivational, I ended up transferring to San Jose State, I graduated with double honors, um, did really well, um, and then I started studying for the LSAT and anticipating a a career in the legal field as a social justice attorney, and uh, I got into one of my top choices at the time, the University of Hawaii, where I wanted, I'm part native Hawaiian, and I wanted to go back and be able to help my people there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't end up going for a last minute family uh, thing that came up with my daughter, But fortunately, now I'm in policy school.
0: The Yoga Show will be right back after these messages. I think that a lot about the practice of yoga is also mental agility and perseverance and at least... That's something that I know I get out of it and a lot of people get out of it is the accepting of the present and the motivation to better yourself. And I'm just wondering if, you know, you found this book at this time when you were needing something in your life and has that thread carried you at all through...
1: But you know what? When it comes to that healing, I did... There is a connection in the sense that... um. I healed really fast for the injuries. I had a skin graft taken from my thigh and put on my my amputated side and put it with staples, and they said that it healed 100%. That never happens, ever. Like you usually have to get another skin graft to cover the area that didn't take. Um, My body physically just healed good, and it's because leading up to that, I had this practice. I was, you know, I had quit all the other things that I was doing that were unhealthy for me, the drugs, the alcohol, the, the bad eating, and I was, you know, I had this healthy regimen of yoga, eating right, not drinking, all those type of things, and exercising. So when I was injured, yes, I had youth on my side, but I also had these healthy practices in place, and I, I also attribute that to being able to heal faster than a, a lot of other folks would have taken, could have taken much longer, Um, My healing was fairly quick.
0: What does your meditation practice look like?
1: My meditation practice, like my yoga practice, is unstructured.
0: Unstructured? Unstructured, Mm -hmm.
1: hodgepodge. Um, It's mostly been at home. I have a sitting practice. I mostly practice at night. I use a Zafu cushion when I'm not wearing my prosthesis, but um, when I am, I usually use a chair. And I like to either focus on the breath um, I carry a lot of tension in the lower belly. So I like to do that kind of breath work where I'm focusing on the belly or it's a mindfulness practice where I'm just present and paying mm-hmm. attention to my sensations, to the different noises around me. Uh, and when I'm feeling where I need, like, I feel like I need a pick me up. I have created, um, different affirmations that I repeat and, um, mantras. I created one when I was applying to law school, studying for the LSAT, I, have one that I go to all the time that I've been using since my practice. Um, what are they? It's just, the, it's just one. It's, um, I have complete peace within and an abundance of joy overflowing. And um, I think that also spoke to, I had mentioned earlier that I had this joy after my accident. And I noticed it dissipating over the years and people closest to me noticed it as well and i started to reflect on why that was happening and i couldn't really pinpoint it and then i realized that maybe it's that i'm starting to take life again for granted mm. like most of us and um and that for those first those years following my accident that every day felt like a blessing and i was really living in that moment and so and it's not only just taking life for granted but it's just It's just life itself as you get older, you have more responsibilities, more pressures career-wise, et cetera. And just those demands I felt like was just like sucking kind of like the joy out of me. And so I wanted to replicate that. And um, I was kind of like searching for that and and through my meditation practice um, and using like a mantra like that, I was trying to like bring that back. Um, Did that help? It helped a little, but it hasn't came back the same. And I think, you know, it it took a life event like almost losing my life to make that happen. You can't replicate that. Um, And so it's not to that extent that I was hoping for, but it certainly helped. Um, I also um, go to the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland that is a social justice meditation center. So there's a lot of people in that space that come from the same circles that I'm in, social justice circles. I go to their Thursday night uh, People of Color Sangha. So it's a meditation sit for about 30 minutes, semi-guided, followed by a discussion. Uh, It was a really great space. Um, After this last presidential election, uh, it was very therapeutic and healing for us to be in there. It, It was a safe space. I go there when I have the opportunity. Um, at my program at UC Berkeley, um, we have um, we started a meditation group on Wednesdays after our first period class that we had um, our first semester. Um, no, it was the start of this this spring semester, but unfortunately, wasn't able to continue with COVID nineteen. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and then at work, I also had a we had a meditation group as well. So I've been able to hold space in in as well with others in community, but I've also mostly just practiced on my own.
0: That idea about how you had found this joy of not taking any day for granted, and then that started to diminish, reminds me of that movie, About Time, when he discovers the double day. Have you seen this movie? (laughs) Okay. Well, this guy figures out at some point... Spoiler alert, he decides decides to live each day twice. the second time around savoring every moment because he chose to be there so he's living it on purpose what? you have seen it <laughs> the demands of our day take us away from the joy of living in the moment
1: yeah that's real <laughs> <laughs> yeah and for me i mean it took me almost losing my life to like have that like um to feel first what i was feeling but also um to feel for like, I felt just so blessed and fortunate. I, I mean, and I didn't take people for granted anymore. Um, people were drawn to me. It was very, it was very odd. <laughs> like, people wanted to be around me. It was, everywhere I went, just people were just drawn to me, or they'd come up to me and say, You're amazing. I, I'd be in my wheelchair somewhere and they'd just come up to me, or they'd give me, go to a restaurant, they'd give me free meal. It was just, it was so strange. Um, but I did feel, I felt like it was like palpable, like it was just spreading this joy. Um, but it took like an event like that for, for, for me to experience that. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't think that has to be the case for everyone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Everybody's journey is different. Every, yeah.
0: Besides meditation, is there anything else that you found that can help you reconnect with that joy?
1: I mean, I actually don't think anything's going to replicate that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Um, but there are things that do give me joy. Um, my work gives me joy, knowing that um, I'm hopefully making a difference or helping to make a difference, but also there's things like nature. I, I, I get my energy. Um, I recharge in nature, so I, I, I spend a lot of time in nature. I also attribute it to that, my indigenous roots. I'm very connected to like the earth, and so every chance that I get, I go and spend time in nature. I do a lot of hiking, A lot of biking now. That's a new thing that I've done. Um, I love dogs. Dogs give me joy. Um, Yeah, and spending time with, you know, loved ones. Um, As you get older, your circle gets smaller Mm -hmm. by choice. And so um, I'm very uh, very intentional on who and how I spend my time with. And, And the things that I do invest in, those are the things that give me joy.
0: So you told me that you had a conversation with your brother. Is he younger or older than you? Younger. Younger. So you had a conversation with your younger brother about healing. And this was after your accident, right? Yes. And he wanted to know.
1: Yeah, he wanted to know because just given our upbringing in the neighborhoods that we grew up in, there wasn't a lot of like positive role models in those spaces, communities. And a lot of the people were dealing with all the things that we were dealing with and exposed to all the things, drugs, gangs. He wanted of, to know how you... How I, like, overcame all that. And and, and, yourself. and and started to live, like, this positive lifestyle and be able to achieve the things that I've been able to achieve. And, and you know, I I'd mentioned to him that it really was um, forgiving my parents wholeheartedly. And he's my half-brother, so we share the same mother. And that was my path for healing. But I did highlight to him that it not, might not necessarily work for him. Um, but it was... Uh, really critical uh, for me in, in my life at that time. Um, it was something that I really emphasized with my daughter. I told her, if I have the ability to forgive, then you should too, or you can too. And, and that was, um I had mentioned to her one time that not only forgiving my parents, but I also forgave the people who murdered her. And that is something that I held on to for a long time and had a lot of anger for, and all the human feelings mm-hmm. of what, like, if I ever came across them, what, what I would Did do. Did you
0: know who murdered your mother? No.
1: Okay. No, but you know, you have all those human yeah. emotions, like the anger and, and, and maybe revenge or whatnot. And, and I had to let that go too. Mm-hmm. These big things that were like just hanging over me. I had to let go too. And so being that we shared the same mom, this had an impact on him. He was much younger, but it still had an impact on him. And so that was also part of my healing, uh, forgiving those people as well, whoever they were. That's kind of been one of my mottos, mm-hmm. like the just the power of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I think there's books on it now, mm-hmm. but I had never heard of those books at the time.
0: How did you come to that conclusion on your own?
1: I have no idea. I was <laughs> 22 years old. What, what does a 22-year-old know? about like life and that I think I just had lived a lot Mm. I grew up really fast being exposed to a lot at an early age and I've always also been an avid reader so I've always been in books and reading so maybe something came came through in one of those readings at one point but yeah like I said it was an aha moment
0: Mm -hmm. so you're so open now and we talked about this idea of self-liberation and how you found it and it wasn't always that way for you so tell us a little bit about how, where you were and how you got here.
1: Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, my uh, motorcycle accident happened 17 years ago um, this weekend, Memorial Weekend. And all, all these years, uh, aside from the last few years, I hadn't worn shorts in all those years. I had a lot of insecurities about showing my prosthesis, um, mostly like people staring, what would, what would they say, what would they think. I mean, I got a lot of, oh, you look like you injured your ankle and I could deal with things like that, people coming up to me. But just the idea of just having it visually there for people to see, it just, it was a bit much and it it was a struggle. And so it was something that I wanted to overcome and didn't really know how to do that and had been thinking and talking about it with people close to me for years and playing these, what do you call stories in my head Mm -hmm. of, you know, like the insecurity itself. And in 2017. And, and one, uh, my capstone project, which is usually centered on like a career goal, I wanted to do something different and focus on being able to create pathways to groups like, for instance, people with disabilities who've been historically excluded from certain spaces to have representation. And so I thought this could tie into like my own personal journey of wanting to be, I guess, live my more authentic self and being able to wear shorts and, and being able to show that visually. And so one of the, the, my capstone project was centered on, like, I wanna see myself on a billboard, you know, um, or the prosthetic company I go to on the walls in their offices, it was predominantly like people doing cool things in the different sports, but it was like all white folks. And I wanted to see representation of people of color as well in those spaces. And so one day I went on a hike here in the Bay Area and I wore shorts that day. There was nobody on the trail. And when I came down, we went and had uh, lunch in downtown Berkeley. And I decided instead of putting my sweatpants back on to go eat in the restaurant, I decided to just keep my shorts on. And yes, people looked and children looked and people made children made comments, but that's natural. And uh, it ended up not being a big deal. It was it was something that I had built up in my head, but it wasn't that big of a deal for me. And it was something that I started to do. It didn't not it didn't come like really quick, but here and there I would wear shorts, and it got easier and easier and easier to to the point that I actually preferred to wear shorts. And um, the thing that I felt disempowered by, I felt empowered by now, and I felt. I wanted to start sharing that, like I'd mentioned um, on social media and that was a struggle because I go back and forth with social media, I actually loathe social media, but I knew this could be a platform mm-hmm. that I could share my story on and potentially help other people as well. Uh, whether they're dealing with challenges of a disability or whatever, they're, they're dealing with any insecurity around body image or so, the things that I was dealing with, it could potentially help them. So um, yeah, I, posted a picture and sh- shared shared with everyone and i got a lot of positive feedback and i started sharing more and more and and, and being more personal in terms of my life story and some of it is, which is a, which i've shared on this podcast and i got a good response and people messaging me not only people that were amputees asking me oh how did how did you start showing your leg like i still can't do that or how did you Like I didn't think I would be able to like hike anymore or do physical activities or my husband was really depressed and he didn't think he'd be able to do these things. And I showed him your social media and he was like, oh, wow, this guy's doing it. If he can do it, I can do it. Or you seem so confident and you know, and and you don't care like you're the way you dress like you're wearing a crop top and how many men feel comfortable enough, especially cisgender, hetero men wearing a crop top. And you're just owning it. And so this was just me being, um, I, I felt like the the social media was a tool for healing and sharing my story as, as well as a means to self-liberation and to inspire others. And it's done that. And um, a lot of really exciting things have come about it in terms of that decision to do that. Uh, and it's like expanded that platform to share more with people and have a broader impact. But um, yeah, I'm still conflicted with the whole
0: what conflicts
1: you about it? This, the I think the the issue with the social media is that it it's kind of counter to my practice of being present in my mindfulness practice and and being dependent on something. I feel like it's it's a very addictive type of thing, and you constantly want to to look at it. And any da- downtime you have, you want to look at it as opposed to like just being in your thoughts and having time to think and reflect, which I did a lot of growing up. And or just you know, maybe picking up the phone and calling somebody that you haven't spoken with as opposed to you know sc- scrolling through your your Instagram for 15 or 20 minutes. Um, and so I like to detox and, and take breaks. And recently, I was studying for finals for my um, first year of graduate school and I took a few weeks off and wow, I, I used that time intentionally to do things that I hadn't been able to do and, and it felt good not being attached.
0: It's also that self-validation, I think. It's that external validation piece of like once you post something, then it's okay, like we're checking it for likes. How many likes? I don't know if you deal with that. You seem to get a lot of likes.
1: <laughs> that doesn't come up as much. I'm trying to be old school and go back to the time of, you know, before. I, I grew up, I'm, I'm, I'm 42. <laughs> I didn't know if I wanted to say okay. that, but uh, yeah, I'm 42. And I grew up without cell phones. And I remember what, and I grew up without a computer, like the internet, the way it is now. And so I remember having all that time and being able to connect with people and being present more. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of nice to like, remember those times. And sometimes I try to bring it back, even though it's difficult.
0: Don't touch that dial. The Yoga Show will return in a moment. You lost your mom to murder at age 12. What else in your life brought you to want to pursue social justice work?
1: Well, when I was 22, and mind you, I was not an angel by any means when I was a young person. Um, When I was dealing with my trauma, I was running with a rough crowd and making a lot of poor choices. Um, But at 22, I was hanging out with some friends in downtown San Jose where I was racially profiled and and arrested for a drunken public when I hadn't been drinking at the time. And that was the first time that I had ever felt disempowered and helpless, like I couldn't do anything. And I remember being so angry and actually being emotional to the point that I cried. Uh, I was so frustrated by that experience. And I told myself, I'm never gonna let that happen again. And so I started thinking about what I could do to address something like that and make sure it doesn't happen to other people that look like me. And so I started thinking about pursuing a legal education, but I hadn't, hadn't even started junior college. And so my path was very long and slow, uh, mm-hmm. but I started junior college and taking all the relevant classes. And, and it started from that experience. That was the impotence in my interest in um, pursuing social justice um, and why I'm in graduate school today. Um, prior to graduate school, I worked at the ACLU. I worked in organizing. Um, I got to do a lot of cool things at the ACLU. They, they do a lot of impactful work. Yeah, and so part of my reasoning for going to graduate school was to develop the skills and tools in addition to what, you know, that I already had so that I could be a more effective advocate and return to that work and, and, and have a, a greater impact. Uh, and also entering these type of spaces, even nonprofit spaces, they're hard to get jobs. Um, they're usually underfunded. Yeah. And, and so when they hire you, like you have to be the perfect fit. And so I felt like if I could go to a good, a really good graduate school program, um, that I could leverage that and, and it would allow me to gain access to spaces that I would historically not have been able to gain access to. And so there was many reasons why I went to graduate school. Of course, this is a career side. And then there's a side of in terms of like the impact that I want to have.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell us about the impact that you want to have.
1: My policy interest that I'm most passionate about is is criminal justice work um, around police accountability, um, around reentry, and for those that don't know what reentry is, Mm -hmm. that is for folks that are uh, formerly incarcerated who are returning home from jail in prison. Being that my mother was formerly incarcerated, I feel um, that um, if we had sensible criminal justice policies at the time and... My mother was a product of draconian uh, criminal justice policies of the 1980s, but had there been sensible criminal justice policies and a model that was more rehabilitative than punitive, she may have received the help that she needed. And today, we're fortunately moving towards that direction. We have a new law here in California, AB 109, realignment, which essentially gives uh, local control around these type of services, reentry services, to local counties. I served as a board member for the Alameda County. I was the co-chair of the Community Advisory Board on Realignment. And so I worked closely with county leadership and impacted community members on providing, you know, holistic services to help people reintegrate and be successful and not recidivate. And so my—and I served on other boards uh, in the county as well. I'm currently a county commissioner on the Human Relations Commission Mm -hmm. for— And so I I stay active in my volunteer work and especially around this particular issue, the reentry, because, you know, my mother was formerly incarcerated. My younger brother has been in and out of prison for the last 11 years. Uh, My uncle was in prison for half his life. And my community, the communities that I grew up were um, over-policed and over-incarcerated.
0: What are the struggles that maybe your mom faced or your brother faced or anyone you've ever worked with in your work has faced that, that someone who's listening to this can think about and be like, oh, yeah, or maybe I never thought about that. That makes you want to help. And and what what are the things that listeners should be concerned about?
1: Well, obviously, my connection is that it's personal and that I've been systemically impacted by my mother's incarceration, being a child of somebody who was formerly incarcerated. But I think um, what you're getting at is – The way it's designed, society's designed in the criminal justice system is that when people break the law and they're convicted of a crime that they go to jail, prison, and then they get out, they're expected to just go back and do things the right way. But the way that the system is designed, Mm -hmm. there's all these barriers in place. Mm that essentially don't allow them to successfully reintegrate. Like for instance, they can't get a job if they have a felony conviction or it's very difficult to get a job. Or maybe the reason why they went, my mother's was a drug addiction, is that they don't get the proper services, whether it's um, alcohol or substance, you know, substance abuse type of services, but go even further, the trauma that they were probably dealing with from their childhood that led them to mm-hmm. do drugs and alcohol, getting to like the root cause. So um, reentry has moved in terms of, um, it's shifted in the sense that they're taking a more holistic approach. It's not like, okay, this person broke parole or probation because they tested dirty for marijuana um, or something like that. But it's like, no, we want them to be successful. It's more of like being a kind of like a cheerleader. mm mm-hmm uh, for these folks and, and making sure that they have all the services they need to be essential. And like housing, housing is a huge thing. When people get out, they don't have access to housing or they can't qualify to get, uh, to rent something because they have a criminal conviction. So that is by design. It was intentional. Yeah. Society expects them to like, you know, come back and be able to do well. You learned your lesson, but then they make it impossible for them to do that. And so that's kind of where my passion is. Um, my brother has experienced that when he's trying to do better. Uh, he, he, he comes out and, you know, he can't really get a job. Where is he to go? He can't get housing. Mm-hmm. And, if, he's, and if, you, if, that, if somebody's burned bridges or they have nobody else in their life, where are they going to go? They're going to be homeless. Um, and so. And now
0: homelessness is a crime. In Denver, where I live, you can't yeah. camp. There's a camping ban. Oh. So everything is criminalized.
1: It was designed to disenfranchise a particular group, right? And it's doing the, it, what it was intended to do. So when people say, oh, we need reforms, reforms of what? The system is working the way it was intended to design. We need to, like, burn the system down and recreate it, in tr- with, you know, with everybody in mind. And it doesn't necessarily mean, like, I'm not a visionary. You know, I want to do some transformative work, but it's going to take visionaries to, like, think of, like, what would this country look like without police or prisons? Most people can't fathom what that could look like. But we always haven't had police. And, and societies have lived in, lived in harmony without police in prisons. Yes, ours is unique because we have different cultures and different belief systems, and it makes it challenging. But it's doable. But for most people, they can't imagine. Even people of color that are, like, murdered by police and all that couldn't imagine a world without them. Like a visionary... Like for for take for instance like we're having this discussion where people are freaking out with this term defund the police, right? And it's just because they can't envision a world, a community without police, right? Well, like in what comes up, well, what happens if somebody murders somebody or somebody rapes somebody or robs somebody in our community? They just don't. They just can't actually see what the alternatives could be. And visionaries have a vision of what that could be, what community safety could be um, in our communities. Um, I mean, police, policing has not always been around um, in, terms, you know, in terms of world history and, and communities lived in harmony without police. So this is not necessarily like a new concept, like a world without police. I um, mean, just given like, I think just having a discussion with a friend of mine recently where this was something that she was grappling with like I support what, what they're out there doing, but we need police. And she was very adamant that we need police. Uh, and this is when it was a woman of color who comes from indigenous background as well where there wasn't always police there. And like I said, pe- people still were able to manage and live in harmony. Um, and so it is possible.
0: I find this lack of imagination among Americans astonishing when they say we can't imagine a world without police. We can't, we can't think of another solution. I mean, this country was founded by a bunch of people who had the radical idea of a new kind of government that spread across the world over. And so for us to say, hmm, like we don't have any other ideas. that's just not what America has sold us as the american dream or american ideals boring and uninspired
1: (laughs) yeah when i hear people say that you know we still need police in some capacity i like to harken back to like the origins of policing and how they were built on slave patrol and so they were used to uh round up runaway slaves uh which eventually evolved into the modern day police which i recently learned from my um, classmates at uc berkeley um around some of the origins of policing and how the origins actually of modern-name policing started here in Berkeley, which was really interesting. But um, you can't tweak a system that was designed to protect and preserve the status quo and to to protect capital, um, to protect property, uh, particularly for the bourgeoisie, the rich, the powerful. and And so you can't make... You can't make reforms, for reforms don't work. And so, um, for me, um, this, this particular issue is um, uh, my life's work. It, it's because I've been impacted by these very issues personally as well as members of my family, and my community at large, why I'm in graduate school, why I'm working where I work and my future aspirations of of, in, of seeing a world a country a society without police um i still have a lot of education to do on my my own on how that actually plays out and and what role i can play and how i can help my community um uh move away from this this idea because even as a multiracial multi-ethnic person of color i'm part latinx i'm also part uh, pacific islander native hawaiian um, there's a lot of people that still can't imagine, even though they've been impacted by policing, have been killed by policing, have been over-policed, over-incarcerated, these same people can't envision a world without police. And so I think some of my role is educating my people on what that could actually look like, but first educating myself. Um, And so it's really exciting to see all the changes that are happening, hearing like Minneapolis deciding to, pretty much dismantle their policing and come up with alternatives and other departments across the country, taking the role out of policing in terms of like responding to mental health crisis and, and designating that to like uh, public uh, health agencies. Now, as we know, like people with dis- uh, mental health or especially and disabilities in general are more likely to be killed by law enforcement. So taking those type of responsibilities away from policing and other low level type of things is a start. Um, I just recently learned that the number one reason that people actually get arrested are for low, uh, drug, offen- drug possession. And so should we be actually arresting people for drug op- uh, possession and drug addiction? Is that actually, does that make our community safer? Um, and so just rethinking on how we use the police um, with the end goal of eventually uh, making police obsolete. Uh, but I'm really excited to see what the movement, what's happening. And this is, you know, it started out in the streets and people demanding change. And, and um, our elected officials are now listening. And I, I, I hope the uh, the movement continues and we see even more change. I think people are, are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And, and they want change now. And they can't wait. I've been an outsider as an activist and advocate in hitting the streets and all those type of things. You know, and going and lobbying different legislators in 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 district in in the in the legislator in the capital, but working on the inside, it's a it's a different game. You have to be able to work with these people who you disagree with, mm-hmm. who you're vehemently opposed of, like they're like the the sheriff, the things that they do. And I struggled with that. It's like I I want to say like fuck the police, but yet I have to like work with the guy that runs the police, right? um and i've been able to navigate that space pretty well and somebody has to do it like so, you rather have representation in those leadership roles than somebody that shouldn't be representing and so it's it's a constant tug of war with me i go back it's not for everybody i know people that are so radical that they would just never indulge in, in a role these roles that i played in but if not me then who and you could have a big impact in government
0: don't roll up your rat just yet We'll have more from The Yoga Show in a few moments. One thing I want to circle back to is that you brought up this idea of um, most people in modern society haven't envisioned a world without police or without incarceration. Something that I think is specific to yoga is the idea of ahimsa and non-harming, and I think that goes perfectly hand-in-hand with the idea of no police and no incarceration. And I'm wondering if any of your ideas that you found in your spiritual practice have found a way to marry with your ideas that you're working through now in your social justice career.
1: No, but I think um, in terms of my practices, my spiritual practices, I think they're an important part because this, this work that I've chosen to pursue, this career, which I'll be doing for the rest of my life, there's going to always be these issues and these struggles and these fights, um, um, that you can easily get burnt out. And it's, there's a high burnout rate in social justice spaces especially when you, you know that like, when, like right now there's so many regressive policies happening in our country and, and all these victories that we've had are being rolled back for the people that need it the most. People of color, women, LGBTQ folks. Um, and so being able to have these healing practices allows me to keep going. It's very, and I don't know if this is a Bay Area thing, uh, an Oakland, Berkeley thing. I, um, but meditation is very common in the spaces that I'm in, in terms of the social justice spaces. Yoga as well, these different healing practices. Um, one of my good friends and former colleague, um, she just went and got certified as a massage therapist because she wants to be able to offer this when we're at, offer her, uh, her service when we're at, at events and stuff like that, like different social justice events and mm. as a, a form of like an offering. To give to others, and so I think that's really cool. But yes, they've played a role in the sense that they've allowed me to to be able to cope with, you know, when you can invest years and years into a campaign that you feel you know is right and that will have a a good impact on in groups that are historically marginalized, and and then it doesn't go your way for whatever reason, and all that investment in all those lives that are now gonna suffer, you have to be able to handle that and keep going because the fight keeps going. Mm -hmm. And so being able to have these meditative practices has been really helpful. Yeah, when I'm thinking about this work and the nature of it, it's very reactionary. uh, And and as a result, reactionary in the sense that we're responding to regressive policies and attacks on our civil liberties and civil rights and our basic human rights. And this work can be very exhausting and and also, and so I, I, I encourage folks to take the time when you need time to, to walk away and just work and, and focus on yourself and, and what you need to do to deal with this. Because um, like, like many others and myself included, this is this work, it's part of my life's work. Uh, and I don't clock all, out at the end of the day because at the end of the day, I'm still brown. I'm a brown man, disabled brown man in America. And so I don't have the, the pleasure, the luxury of clocking out. Um, but it has taken an emotional toll on me, and recognizing that I've, and and being able to, and being, and not feeling guilty or any shame to walk away and let other folks step up and do that work. Um, and it's exciting to see like that's actually happening. so many youth across the country are stepping up and uh, and filling those leadership roles. I think this movement right now is intergenerational, so it's exciting to see this collaborative between like you you know the old school with all the wisdom and, and have lived through different uh, movements including the civil rights movement and to the young people who are excited uh and on fire and and but also knowing that this is the type of work that in, and from my understanding in my professional capacity that these changes um don't often happen overnight even though we have seen some as of late but they are like more um they happen over over time and so you're um just learning how to pace yourself and remembering that this is not a, a sprint, but a marathon.
0: Police reform is kind of the catchphrase of the moment right now, but this is a space that you've been doing deep work in for a very long time. What is your reaction to what's happening right now, and and what do we as a community need to do to be better supporters of the movement?
1: Well, uh, for me, having been an activist and advocate and actually done this work in, in different capacities professionally, I think this moment is ripe for change in terms of, um, I've never I've never seen anything like this in terms of like the amount of change you see across the nation from, police being removed from school districts, to police being uh, held accountable, fired within a day. There's you know this is just unheard of, and uh, also and just in my lifetime just seeing the momentum that this has been going on for almost or at least three weeks now. Um, and so, like I mentioned earlier, I think um, in terms of the spaces I've been, it's been more re- reform oriented, where you're working here on the margins to make incremental, like tweaks on the on the margins to make incremental change. And what you're seeing now is that people can't wait for that, and that these systems that were designed to to oppress and to exploit, and um, they're actually they were designed in a way where they can't be really fixed, and so. Folks are looking for more of a transformative change, um, and, and, and that's why you're hearing these buzzwords of like defund the police, um, divest, reinvest. And I think people are coming out with different explanations on what that means. I think for me, I'm more from the camp of defund the police with the end goal of making police obsolete, but I know that could be a little bit much for certain people that can't envision a world without police. Um, and I think that comes through education on what there, what kind of alternatives there are to policing. Um, I know that, yeah, and and, the, and what kind of framework, people are very, a lot of the organizations right now, I'm interning with the ACLU, I worked at the ACLU uh, prior to graduate school, and so they've kind of pivoted to focus on these policing issues, and that's kind of as much as I can say, but I know that there's a lot of the, the, the wording uh, divest, reinvest, so you know, reducing the role of the police uh, would in turn free up monies that can go and be reinvested into things like education and and uh, mental health. In um, school counselors, right now in California, you have law enforcement on every high school and on a lot of public school campuses, but then there's oftentimes not counselors. And I, when I grew up here in California, you if you got in a fist fight or you broke the rule or whatever, some kind of rule, you would get sent to the office, maybe talk with the counselor, and now it's law enforcement that plays that role, and you often see when there's are students of color that those situations escalate, and and once people, or they get arrested for something that before you would have just got reprimanded, so you have that school-to-prison school to pipeline.
0: School-to-prison pipeline?
1: Yeah, and, and so what happens with the school-to-prison pipeline is that youth, particularly, especially youth of color, once they are in the system, they're more likely to uh, stay in the system, and so trying to address the school to prison pipeline.
0: George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were both recently murdered by police. What we're seeing right now is a huge response, not just to their deaths, but to a systemic culture of racism and murder. How can we turn advocacy into action at this point and take the momentum that we have, the energy that we have out there in the streets into real action and to make some real change?
1: I think it varies. I think everybody subscribes to a different method. I think for some people getting into the streets, uh, going into the streets, it's not their cup of tea for whatever reason. Um, They don't feel comfortable out in the streets or maybe they have different, like myself, I'm an amputee and even though I have the ability to go out in the streets and march for some people, that's not a thing that they can actually do but you can call, and I know this is not something that everybody would agree with in terms of voting, but you can vote in elections. Uh, District attorneys are the most powerful law enforcement officials in the country, and they are often the ones that are responsible for bringing charges against law enforcement. Um, And so what a lot of people don't know is that um, the district attorney in some states, it's called the prosecutor, uh, prosecutor, that those people are elected. And so you have the ability to elect those people and hold them accountable, especially if that community that you're in has different beliefs on what like smart justice looks like. Um, and so um, showing up at the polls and not just when it's for the president, it's often the local issues that have the most impact on people and communities. Um, you can also, like for myself, even though I've spent a lot of years educating myself um, through reading different books um, there's still a lot for me to learn and unlearn and so you can do your part in educating yourself on these issues and not just subscribing to like tweets and and what you're seeing in the media but actually reading those important books and there's a long list that people are putting out on social media right now of what you can read to be more informed you can um, support black businesses and organizations that are doing this work so maybe you're not the type that feels comfortable calling your legislator, uh, your local legislator. Maybe you have money and you can afford to like, give to these organizations. That's a way that you can show up as well. And also I think it starts uh, within the individual, like I said, educating yourself, but educating the people closest to you. Um, I think there's conversations going around that I've heard where like, we all have people in our family, families that say problematic things and hold particular beliefs and so maybe having those co- tough conversations with those people on what's actually happening, uh, maybe. Um, and so I know that I've had a few as of late, some of these conversations, and I plan to have a few more. Um, but doing my part to address anti-black racism within myself, as well as my uh, family and community at large, I think it starts from that. I, I, I go back to, um, I have a, a, a daughter who's a young woman now, and and the type of values that I was instilling her as a young person to be more open-minded and tolerant for difference and more compassionate for difference. And so it's how we're raising our kids because like we've heard people don't grow up hating, right? This is a learned behavior. And so we can educate our children and teach them the values that we want them to, to you know, to uphold as, as, as when they're adults.
0: Do you have any book recommendations or organization recommendations that we should be supporting right now we can look into?
1: Um, I I think one book that really, I think, illuminated me to a lot of the issues that that we're seeing now is Michelle Alexander's um, Mass Incarceration in the Age. It's the new Jim Crow Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And um, that book was so powerful. I mean, you even have folks on the right sometimes quote out of that book. But it was one of those books, be prepared um, when you read it to be very disheartened on what you're reading. I think I read, I stopped and read uh, halfway through I stopped and read the Bhagavad Gita um, just because I needed something to bring me up. And um, and then I, I returned to that book. But it's one of those books that, especially if you're new to what's happening and you want to kind of understand a little bit more, I highly recommend that book.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking to us today and being a part of our September-October issue. Are there any parting words of wisdom you'd like to leave to our listeners?
1: Um, Well, Lindsay, Yoga Journal, this has been really wild and a very exciting experience for me. Can't wait to see and hear it all. Um, Just want to say mahalo nui loa, which is thank you very much in Hawaiian. And if folks want to follow me on Instagram, my handle is live underscore mindful. Thank you.
0: Perfect. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Stephen for being part of this issue. To learn more about Stephen, read his cover story in our healing issue on newsstands now. If you're looking for ways to contribute to criminal justice reform, please check out the NAACP Legal Defense Fund at naacpldf.org. And tune in two weeks from now for a new episode of The Yoga Show. In the meantime, you can follow me at linds.tucker on Instagram for more from The Yoga Show and beyond. The Yoga Show is produced by me and Aviv Rubenstein. Follow him on social media at Rambo Calrissian. The music by Katie Canavan. More from her on Instagram at Accordion to Katie. Until next time, for The Yoga Show, I'm Lindsay Tucker. We'll see you on the mat.
1: Hi, listeners. Aviv Rubenstein here, producer of The Yoga Show. We talked to Stephen about some additional areas where you could contribute your time and your money to help fight for the cause of criminal justice reform. And here's what he had to say. The Anti-Police Terror Project at anti-police-terror-project.org is a Black-led, multiracial, intergenerational coalition that seeks to build a replicable and sustainable model to eradicate police terror in communities of color. And Critical Resistance at criticalresistance.org seeks to build an international movement to end the prison industrial complex by challenging the belief that caging and controlling people makes us safe. So check out both of those organizations at the following websites: anti projectorg and criticalresistance.org. Thanks a lot.